Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 8. We'll read verses 28 through 30, Romans 8, 28 through 30, as we continue in our study of this blessed, wonderful chapter of Scripture. Let me remind you that this is a very connected and doctrinally interwoven text of Scripture. Last week, we studied about the sovereignty of God in verse 28, how he ordains all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And it is the sovereignty of God. This is a presumption to understand the remainder of these verses. It's a beginning place. The power, the sovereignty, the unchecked control of the God of the universe And specifically how that meets us as his creatures and particularly us as his children, people who have been saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we take this up, please know that these verses are so wonderfully interconnected. This morning we're going to study specifically verse 29. We're going to read verses 28 through 30. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called... He also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have heard your word, and we pray that you would bring us under it, that we would submit to it and understand it so far as we're able that we would receive its truth as a ministry and a mercy and a compassion to us. Oh, Lord, that you would direct us in our lives that we might live after Christ because of the truth that we are taught within the Scriptures. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray for your help and we rely upon it with great patience. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Puritan preacher, William Perkins, delighted so much in this passage of Scripture that he took to calling it the golden chain. The reason for that is, is because of each part of these verses. You know, I scarcely want to just say these verses, but rather each part of the verses are magnificent and are like links in a chain that are intimately connected to one another. It's an improper thing to take one piece, the foreknowledge of God, another piece, the sovereignty of God, the predestination of God, the justification, glorification of God, to take these apart and to understand them separately, but rather under God's leading and guiding, these things work together, the wonder of his ministry and his love in the lives of his people. And so they should be taken in apart. As a whole, and you say to me, but pastor, you say that, but 
Last week you preached verse 28. This week you're only preaching verse 29. It seems like you're splitting it up a little bit. Well, friends, I'm only human and we only have an hour. (laughs) So we're going to do our very best. And I encourage you every week to continually think backward and forward in chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, the golden chain of the salvation of Christians. The three points I want us to see, all from verse 29. The first, the beginning of salvation. The second, the purpose of salvation. And the third, the ultimate goal of salvation. The beginning of salvation, the purpose of salvation, and the ultimate goal of salvation. In introduction to this passage of Scripture, I mentioned that these are all interconnected. Verses 28 through 30, they make up a brief survey of doctrine. But I do want to say to you, this is not a systematic theology. Paul doesn't go into a great length of commentary within these verses. Rather, he introduces these wonders of grace connected to one another in quick succession. One after another after another flowing like a stream of mercy and grace. But I do want to prove it to you. So we read verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then notice how verse 29 starts. For those whom he foreknew. For. Or it could be translated because of. Or otherwise in light of. Verse 29 naturally flows from this wonderful truth of the sovereignty of God. That all things, all moments are under his holy control. That nothing is independent of him. He knows the number of hairs upon your head. He knows the number of breaths you will take, the number of tears you will cry. He knows... The things that you do and you don't like and why you like them even better than you do. And he controls those things. It's not just his knowledge, but his absolute power over these things. And all of these things, verse 28 tells us very clearly, the Lord directs for your good. For your good. And so we come into verse 29. And out of that truth we encounter the beginning of our salvation for those whom he foreknew he also predestined. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined. There are some controversial passages of scripture and friends this is one of them. And one way I want to say to you it's because this isn't a commentary like I mentioned a moment ago Paul doesn't express himself in more terms rather his focus is the power of God and his mercy resting upon his people okay that's Paul's goal he's not trying to instruct in that sense a formal understanding of the ideal of the foreknowledge and the predestination of God however when we read this if we come to this passage of scripture you 
very well may have a misunderstanding. So many people have had disagreements and misunderstanding between well and good-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. And it's because this can be confusing. And so I want to invite you with me this morning to read your Bible well, okay? We're going to take the Bible in its bare, plain, translated sense and in its contextual meaning, the usage of these words within Paul's writings and within the whole writing of Scripture so that we can pursue clarity. Because what is the hope here? It's that you see God in his power and in his love for you. It's not just so your mind grows or that you win arguments, but rather you are at home with the Lord. And so I want us to focus our attention on this word for new. And plenty of people, again, have confused this word. It's had lots of disagreements. It's only used five times in the whole Bible. Okay? However, the root of this word is gnosko, the word for knowing or knowledge in the New Testament, which has its relationship to another word in the Old Testament that is its equivalent, the word to know. And whenever you look at the word, it's really plain. This is no sort of uh, Bible code. It's not hard to translate. It literally means to know beforehand. Pro gnosko, know beforehand, simple Uh, Plain as day in its translation, not very complicated at all. In fact, not even given to a whole lot of different ways to then translate it. It's very plain and very literal. And some people have come to this word and they translated it. And they have attempted to interpret it just on the basic reading of the word itself outside of its context. Because notice what Paul doesn't tell you here. He does not tell you what the word means. And so somebody will take this, and some people have, and they'll say, well, it means to know beforehand. That this speaks to the knowledge of God, and certainly it does. And then they'll back away and they'll say that this has meaning about what God knows about you before you were saved. And it doesn't take very much work to know that that's applying meaning that's not there found directly in the passage. Somebody might say, God knew who would choose him. That's true. God's omniscient. He knows all things. Somebody might say that God knew who would live righteously and also who would live unholy lives. Likewise, that is profoundly true. God knows all things. Nothing can be hid from God, right? Nothing can be hid from God. Or maybe somebody would look and they would say in that word and apply the meaning that God knew who would place their faith in him. So then, or therefore, out of God's knowledge of who the person is, then he predestined them. And that's a very common reading of the word. It's held by many well-meaning, believing brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. However, I believe that that is, well, a confused understanding of what the word means on total. God knows all things. That is plain in the scriptures. That is obvious. 
But if this only means that and that God then predestines on account of what you do, then who is the author of predestination and destiny in general? Who is the one that controls all things that come to pass? Is it not the creature who acts and instructs the plan of God? John Murray, a systematic theologian, says that to understand God's foreknowledge in this way obliterates the biblical idea of predestination. And he's not wrong, because then it is certainly not God who is its author. And I'll say this, at the very bottom of it, it would at least make the verse very repetitive, wouldn't it? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. It makes predestination a thing inseparable from foreknowledge in this passage of Scripture. I'll tell you also that as we consider this, it would make, if that's the translation, if that's the understanding that Paul is intending here, it would make Paul disagree with himself in his other letters. Moreover, it would make Paul disagree with himself in just a few verses whenever he comes again in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 9, where he says, before either had done either good or evil for the purpose of of election to stand. You see, Paul would be disagreeing with himself fundamentally. And so you may ask the question, all right, pastor, you're telling me that it's not God foreknowing what I will do or my character or what I won't do. It means something else. Well, then tell me what it means. And I want to say to you, friends, it does not point specifically to God's omniscience. He is omniscient, but that's not what Paul is speaking of specifically. But rather, this word is a thing that points to God's sovereign working in salvation to his people. It fits with the topic at hand. I mentioned a moment ago that the word has its root word, ginosko, the word for knowing or knowledge. Its use in the New Testament, because we want to be good Bible readers, let the Bible tell us what it means from its own words. Well, whenever that word refers to me or you knowing somebody, or God knowing a person, or a person knowing another person, it has specific reference to an affectionate and a loving and even an intimate knowledge of persons between themselves. You may say, but pastor, doesn't the Bible talk about someone knowing that a person is going to come or somebody knowing that a drink is sat upon the table? Sure it does. There is another word for knowing that as well. But whenever the word here is used between persons, it speaks of the heart. It's unique. In the Old Testament, yada, it's it's the same word, but in Hebrew. And what does it do? It speaks of a husband knowing his wife. This wonderful, loving relationship, one with another. Not just the carnality of the marital relationship, but the heart's adherence to one another. It might likewise be said in the New Testament the same way. People knowing one another is a loving relationship. A father knowing the son or the son even knowing the mind of the father as Jesus speaks about his knowledge of the mind of the father has to do with loving submission. 
This is not just a simple word that you just basically look in a dictionary and then throw it over your shoulder and say, this is all it can ever mean. Rather, you have to see it within the context that it means very specifically the relationship of two persons knowing, loving, and having affectionate knowledge of one another. And you say, but pastor, that's so hard. It seems like a tortured interpretation. It wouldn't if you were an ancient Greek. It wouldn't if you were an ancient Hebrew. You and I are modern people and you and I have language that we use in a very specific way and we have taken the meaning of knowledge and reduced it to things with which we are simply acquainted with or basically aware of. Whenever I studied, I had students that were alongside me and I'm sure that I'm guilty of doing exactly what I'm going to describe to you. Someone would say, well, what are the things you studied in school? And you might have someone say, well, I... No Greek. I know Hebrew. I know science. And if you've ever been in a university classroom, you know that that's a bit laughable about your classmates and if you're honest about yourself. We've reduced knowledge to a thing so low and so shallow that it almost has no meaning. I quite like the Greek and the Hebrew use of the wonderful idea of the heart's gripping and affectionate grasp of another thing, that being the character of knowledge. You say, okay, pastor, I'll follow you. I don't like that you stepped on my toes about knowing things that I don't really know, but I'll follow you. I'll go there with you. What does that have to do with the passage of Scripture? And then what does this mean if that's actually what you're saying Well, it speaks to God having set his affection and his love upon you, his people, from all eternity. It's not just that he knows you or he loves you, but he knew you before you were you. And you say, hang on a second. We're getting into a place and a description that my mind can't really penetrate. Yes, we are. You say, well, pastor, this is so hard to get my my heart around. Well, friends, yes, it is. It's holy and it's wonderful and it's transcendent. This is a reality that predates you except the knowledge of you in the mind of God. And you say, well, I can't get there. Well, of course it's the mind of God. Where do you know the mind of God? But in the word of God. But it doesn't make it less true that God set his affection and his love upon his people from all eternity. And I want to direct your attention to where this is in the passage of Scripture. We just read verse 28, a word of God's sovereignty to suffering people. Okay? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Christian, you've gotten the diagnosis. It's cancer. It's a lifelong struggle with diabetes. It's a lifelong struggle with disease. You've gotten the news. He or she has died. You've lost a child. You've lost a loved one. You've lost a job. You've lost a house. It's burned down. Whatever the news is, the hard news, or the news of coming persecution, or the experience of it where the Christian 
is just human and struggles with the fact of their suffering and the sovereignty of God. And the word to that person is this, God works even these things to the good of those who love him. Christian, you love me and I promise these things are not meaningless. And so then if we come into verse 29, doesn't it then wonderfully follow and make perfect contextual sense that he would direct us to the eternal nature of his loving heart for Christians? Of course it does. It makes wonderful, glorious, ministerial, personal sense to Christians. And you may say, okay, pastor, I get this. God loved me before I was me. He loved me before anything was. He set his heart aflame for his people. Where's the application? It's here. Your love or your salvation began in the heart of God. You hear what I'm saying? Your salvation began in the heart of God. The inverse of that is true. Your salvation did not begin in your love for God. In fact, your salvation began before the foundations of the earth were even constructed. They were yet only conceived in the mind of the eternal God of heaven. Your salvation began in the heart of God. The only precondition of your salvation is that he freely chose to set his love upon you. That's it. He freely chose to set his love on you. It was not conditioned on what you could do or what you have done or what you might do or what you would not do. It was conditioned on his heart. His love, His grace, His mercy to you as His creature. It was love ex nihilo out of nothing but the heart of God. And you say, this is so hard to think on, Pastor. Isn't this so difficult? How can I even get my mind around this wonderful thing that you're telling me that God would love me? irrespective of me because friends that's not how we love is it you and I love things generally on the account of their relation to us or their character qualities I love my sons and the little daughter that's going to be born soon so much I can barely get my head around it but I promise you it does have relationship to my being their father and their being my children It's not just extended freely or in every direction. It's differentiated. I love certain things. I love a hike on a nice spring day. It's got to be a nice spring day. Not just any spring day. Not a rainy spring day. Those are miserable. It's dependent. I don't love like God loves. You don't love like God loves. You love chocolate cake, but you wouldn't love it if it was cookies and cream. It is significant to understand that God's love flows from a heart of perfections. You understand where I'm going with this? His love needs nothing from any of its objects. 
It's not dependent on how good you look, how well you can behave. It's not dependent on the things you have done or haven't done or will do. It flows freely from his abundance of pure love. Love in the heart of God loves because if it doesn't love, it is not perfect love. And God is a God of perfect love. His foreloving is dependent upon his own heart. He loves you because he loves you. And you say, but pastor, you're making up things. You're getting philosophical and theological, but I direct your attention, my friend, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. If you're familiar with that chapter, you know chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, talk about how not good the hearts and minds of humanity are. We're described something like the living and walking undead that submit to a spirit of the power of the air like this satanic demonic spirit we're called children of wrath like the rest of mankind it doesn't say good things about us and then you come to verse four but god rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with christ What is the precondition of your salvation? What is the the beginning principle of God's heart toward you? It's only his own love. It's not anything in you or in me. The same is true of John 3.16. You know it so well. You're quoting it before I read it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is the precondition of God's love? Nothing but God. He is. He is the first principle of his heart to you. It's not you. It's not me. It's not even the need of a sinful and fallen heart, but rather the perfect heart of God. And you say again, Pastor, I get it, but give me the application. Well, it's this, friends. You did nothing to gain the love of God and you can do nothing to lose the love of God. It depends upon Him and Him alone. There is security in His sovereign love. He's loved you before you even breathe. He loves you as you breathe and He loves you when you will cease breathing and in the day when you breathe again in newness of life. And that is glorious. And the Christian heart ought to find a place to hide a shelter and a mercy in every difficult and hard season. He loves you indifferent of you because he's loving. That's what Paul is saying in the first part of verse 29. I submit to you in this verse of scripture. You go on and in verse 29, we regard the purpose of our salvation. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so first we've studied foreknowledge. And here we go, predestination. And you're thinking to yourself, well, friends, I have absolutely come to a reformed in Presbyterian church this morning. We're not going to get into anything that is, it is all disagreeable. Predestination. He also predestined. And through the years of biblical study, I've heard so many different ways where people have tried to make a plain word complicated in the text of Scripture. 
Oh, that can't mean predestination. They'll qualify it by some false view of foreknowledge. Oh, it can't possibly mean it, but the word is so simple. It is not hard to understand in the Greek. It means literally to determine beforehand. If you really want to get poetic, you may call it foreordination. It still speaks of the sovereign hand of God, directing every second of time and every act of every person. Not only that God has sovereign knowledge, his omniscient power over all things to know things, but rather his control. That's what it speaks of. He is setting things in order. He is bringing things to pass. He is ordering all things as the author of history and reality, the past, the present, the future. And yes, he not only decides the occasions of your life, but every single portion of it. It's according to his knowledge and his act of bringing things to pass. And people say, ah, pastor, that sounds nice, but is it realistic? Well, friend, how much have you ever really provided for yourself? Really? The gains that you have gotten, even in work, did you provide yourself the work? Did you provide yourself the education and qualities that are necessary to gain that work? No, you didn't. Those rest in the hand of God. Have you clothed yourself the whole of your life? Well, no, you have not. You have not given the sun its shining, nor the plants their growing, nor the weaver his strength nor the cloth its form upon the warp, but rather God has. This is not a hard idea to understand. It is simply a hard thing for people to want to accept. God predestines all things. And people come to the verse of Scripture and they want to go and have a class in systematic theology and they want to let their minds go into a philosophical theology that gets lost in a useless place of ideas and ideals but this is pastoral this is near to the people of God this is for you to be comfortable in the presence of the almighty in Christ Jesus what do I mean well it's because he doesn't only tell us that God predestines things in general but it tells us that he predestines his people To be conformed to the image of his son. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And here in just a few words Paul describes the entire purpose of our salvation. And you say, but pastor, is that all of it? And I'll say, yes, it is a summary statement. You say, okay, help me understand. Well, let's deal with it. You come to the passage of Scripture and you hear the language of being conformed to the image of his Son. And if you've been in a church your whole life, some of you have, some of you haven't, but you've been here for a while, you know that the language of being conformed, it's the language of sanctification, of being made holy, of killing sin and loving righteousness and turning from sin into Christ. And certainly this passage means that. It means sanctification. That's not outside of what this means, but this means more than that. When you come here to the word that's used for conformed, it means to be formed together in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Formed together. I spent a lot of time trying to get my head and my heart around this idea. The only way I think I can 
begin to put this to you in an illustration would be to say it's like a potter who takes two lumps of clay. Maybe they have different tones, if you will. One is more pale, one is darker. And then with his skill, he places them not near one another, not in the same room, but rather forms them into one another together. And there is still the distinction, yet the inseparability of their union. Think of it, the potter's made a teapot, and one set of clay becomes the body of the teapot, and the other portion comes to be made as the handle, and it's more pale, and it's distinguishable, and yet another portion gets to be the spout, these things together, and then he takes and fires it. And then can you easily take them apart? No, of course you can't. They are distinguishable yet inseparable. And so in a more general term, I want to tell you that this speaks to the Christian's union with Jesus. What are we predestined in the love of God unto? To be near His Son so wonderfully and inseparably that we can be called a member of his body. And you say, well, pastor, that's a bigger thing to be said, isn't it? Yes, it is. This absolutely cannot leave out the doctrine of sanctification being made holy. But it's even bigger. We think like him, we speak like him, we love like him, we obey like him. We laugh like him. We suffer like him. We live like him, with him. That's what a Christian is predestined to in the love of God. To be so near to Christ that we are conjoined with him forever. And you say, okay, Pastor, I got you. That's intense. Where do I go with this? And I want to point you to this wonderful thing that it shows to us the purpose of our salvation broadly. That the answer to the question, what is the purpose of salvation? It's very simply put in this way. It doesn't mean it's simplistic, but it's simple. The purpose of salvation is to be so very near to Christ that we are like a bride in the embrace of of the bridegroom lovingly held tightly joined I'm curious if I'm curious if you were to be asked the question or maybe you were to think on what someone else might say about what's the purpose of salvation what might be said had and I, as we rode to church this morning, he got the cliff notes of this sermon, and I asked him, very proud of how he answers in spiritual terms, what's the purpose of salvation? And hadn't told me first, well, Daddy, it's so we would be holy like Jesus is holy. I said, yes, that's certainly a purpose of salvation. He continued on, and he told me, well, Daddy, it's because God loves us. I said, yes, son, I told you that in the first point. That's a good point, too good answers, but I think most people might answer the question, what's the purpose of salvation? And they would say something along this line, so that sinners don't go to hell, (laughs) 
right? That's very obvious. That's one of the evangelistic tactics that the church has always used. It's the reality of hell and the punishment of sin that people uh, would not get what they deserve, but they would get what Christ deserves in salvation, correct? And that is a purpose of salvation. It's at the very core of it, obviously. But Paul is saying, oh, Christian, step back and see the wonder that God intends for your salvation to be your nearness to his son so that you become like him because you're so close to him. Praise God that my salvation isn't just about escape from a fiery pit, but that it is nearness with a God who loves me. Praise God for that truth. It makes it so much more wonderful. And it gives me every reason to expect so much more than not getting what I deserve. It gives me every reason to expect I'm going to be given so many good gifts because I'm with the Son who deserves all things. You go on and in verse 29, the last portion, we have the ultimate goal of our salvation. And you say, but come on, that's so close. Couldn't you have written a better point to the sermon? Quite possibly, but sometimes I struggle with words. The ultimate goal, doesn't that sound like the purpose of our salvation? Well, of course, it's united, it's connected, it's a thing that can't be split uh, one directly from the other. And we read that the reason that the Lord predestined us uh, to be formed together with Christ is in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay. So what is your salvation for? What is God's end goal? What is it going toward? What's its great product? It's very akin to what we've already studied in the previous uh, point of the sermon. Some might say, well, the ultimate goal of salvation is to satisfy the justice of God. Well, yes, it can't be less than that. God punishes sin. He's a holy God. He's going to punish things rightly or else he's unjust. Some might say it's to save sinners because he's a God of compassion. Of course, he saves sinners. Some might say very broadly, it's to glorify God. Absolutely. Amen. Yes, yes, and yes again. But Paul wants us to simply see that there is this other aspect Whenever he says, in order, in order, he's saying that there is purpose there, there is a goal, and it is that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. Again, talking to Haddon as we went through the sermon this morning, I said, son, do you know what it is to be a firstborn? And he said, yeah, daddy, I'm the firstborn in our house. I said, yes. I said, what are some privileges that a firstborn might get? He said, one day, I'm going to get all your things. That's right at the heart of it, isn't it? An inheritor. An inheritor. And that's what Paul is referring to, calling Jesus the firstborn among many brothers. You see, Haddon's got a couple of brothers. He's got a sister coming. There are many of them, but the firstborn has a different role. And historically in the Bible, uh, there's this unique role of the firstborn they receive all the benefits of the father it doesn't go to the mother you say well that's kind of cold and hard but that's the ancient reality it goes to the firstborn son because he's the man of the house when the father is gone and he cares for mother and brother and sister 
and he takes over as the head of the household to care for and ensure and provide for until he dies and another takes his place. The firstborn is eminently important in the midst of the family of God. And Paul says, our salvation is to the ultimate goal that Jesus inherits all the blessedness and the gifts of God that he deserves so that he can be our inheritor, redeemer, and put it on a table for his brothers to enjoy. Do you hear this? The ultimate goal of your salvation, it doesn't point to you directly or to me or to any of his children points to Jesus's provision it points to Christ the Lord's idea to redeem his children is so that Jesus can be glorious before the people of God Jesus is the reason for our salvation it is his glory and his care that is pictured in the purposes of God for us And in that I just say, praise God. This universe and my life before the Lord is not centered upon me. It's centered upon the perfections of his love. It is centered upon my nearness to his son and his son's glorious work for me. It's not a me-centered universe. It's a God-centered eternity. And he is not only the author, but he is the full picture of my salvation that I am pleased to enjoy. Praise be to God who reigns above. Praise to him. Praise to him. He's so much greater than anything we could ever provide for ourselves. And he's given us a salvation that is all about his son, Jesus Christ. Now friends, I invite you, if you don't know Christ... You're hearing all this for the first time to place your trust in him. This is freely offered. You probably already understood that. But the Lord calls us to faith in his son. Not as a condition of salvation. But as the way he works to save the lost. And so friends if you don't know Christ. I call on you to cling to him and put your trust in him. And Christians. I call on you to simply in your heart shout amen to the Lord. This is his ministry and his grace to you and to me. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercies that you offer to us freely. That Lord, you are concerned with our keeping and your hand upon us throughout every season. Lord, we pray that high truths may make their way into the depths of our hearts so that we would drink deeply of your grace and your mercy to us, that we would be a people formed after your love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.